serious. Then I will break you. Hulk smash! You really adopted the dark. I could do this all day. Welcome to the Title Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, coming to you from the Chris Kringle Studios with a holiday edition of Title Theory, which is our little divergent wing of Title Run, where we talk about all things nerdy, entertainment, and general stuff that you know people like myself and my co-host today, William Lindblad, find entertaining. William, tell the people what's up. Hey, everybody. So, uh, season two of The Mandalorian just finished. And uh, William, I am a big fan of the show. I don't think I've enjoyed it quite as much as some other people who feel like it's the best Star Wars content ever created. But I'm a big fan of the show. I know you're a big fan of the show. And uh, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on kind of what you th- on this most recent season, as well as um, kind of where you see the show going from here, because the show left a lot of room for divergent spinoffs which is something we're also going to address in a second. So just real quickly, I know I just talked a lot. I just said a whole lot. Kind of what were your overall thoughts about season two and what did you enjoy? What did you not enjoy? Let's start there. I, I, I'm one of those people that thoroughly, that sort of thinks that it's, it's like the best star Wars content that's been put out since the original trilogy. And I, I think the second season has been even better than the first. And I really, really like the first season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like you said, the, the thing about the the second season is that I think it's was so masterfully done and that it told a good story encapsulated in eight episodes, but it also included a lot of fan service that was done well, I think, and not um, too over the top or too in your face about it, uh, which is always the best way to do it. Well, and in episode eight, the fan service was gratuitous. Yes. But it made sense in the story they were telling. Yes, they they had they had set it up to the point where it it made sense yeah. <laughs> to to pay it off that that yeah. big um, explosive way uh, at the end. But yeah, I think that one of the things that that caught me about this, and this is sort of just like like you mentioned about the uh, the springboard for all these other series that tie in spinoffs, is that it it was very much an, like an epic quest, and so you had like side quest episode, side quest episode, and like he'd pick up something important here like he'd make a an ally in this episode that would come back later on or he would um discover um what was it? i think it was the ahsoka episode the jedi where he fa- uh, got the mandalorian besker spear that he would use later on it's like and so yeah. it, was, it was sort of like little little like johnny Appleseed <laughs> uh seeds being planted throughout the entire episode and then like the last two or three episodes everything just starts blooming uh, and you get yeah. to reap the benefits of all of those things that you've sown from the first season and also from the first episodes of this season. You predicted that the best car spear would be used against Moff Gideon. By the way, I just want to tell our fans that, that uh, William was basically predicting, oh, okay, well, this is going to come back up in the last couple episodes. This is going to come back up in the last couple episodes. And for the most part, you were right. Um, we didn't get the quite the magnificent seven team up that we thought we were going to get, but we got pretty yeah. close to that. Yeah, it, it came close. It was, it was pretty close to that. The only one really missing was Cobb yeah. Vance. I, I really wanted so. Cobb, and I wanted Grief to come, but Grief has other things to do. He's a, a marshal, uh, governor, or sheriff, or something now. Yeah, and Grief, honestly, in that setting, doesn't seem to fit as much because um, I don't think you're talking your way out of that situation, and that's kind of <laughs> his thing is talking. But um, I kind of felt the same way. Like I enjoyed this season more than the first season. 
I felt like there was less, and I'm doing air quotes here, filler episodes. And I, I use that term loosely because with the Mandalorian, every time they go on one of the side missions, they always use the mission to establish some character that they're going to come back to or establish some plot point that comes back up later. And so I can appreciate that. But at the same time, there's a part of me that's like, could we have done that in a half an episode and then gotten back to the main quest? That wouldn't have been, yeah. you know. So, the like for example, the um, the one where he gets uh, shot down by the New Republic and crashes into the planet with the ice spiders. It's like, okay, that establishes some stuff about the New Republic, and but like really nothing else happened on that episode other than the, the frog lady. It's just like, you it, know, it just like I don't know. It, I didn't dislike it. Like the episode was entertaining. But it was like, it's kind of like when you're watching the Clone Wars cartoon show, there's an episode with the droids. You pretty much know that that episode is going to be completely worthless and not advance the plot of the, of the show hardly at all. So it's kind of like one of those. And when there's only eight episodes in a season, like I said, I don't, they're not filler. I don't hate to use that word. That's too strong a word. But they're not quite as content rich as some of the other ones. So the, co- the first few four episodes kind of went main uh mission side quest main mission side quest and then it kind of went the last four through okay linear narrative through yeah. to the end I, I i felt and it was it's funny that you mentioned because that's if i had to pick a weak episode it would be the frog lady episode because to me aside from the things like you said like it, it introduces a little bit about the the new republic with the uh the x-wing pilots and everything but it's also it's basically a 30 minute or so um explanation for how he meets Bo-Katan. <laughs> that's that's right. essentially what exactly. it's like. It's like a 30 minute setup uh, with some ice spiders. Yeah. it's a, There was the cute stuff about seeing like baby Yoda eating the eggs, which we all thought maybe had some kind of significance or was going to go somewhere. It didn't, but you know, it was cute. It offended <laughs> some people. And yes, I am still referring him to referring to him as baby oh. Yoda. Yes. So yeah, it's yeah. Like the name might be one of the, 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 the rare misses of this season. Like, it's just so awkward to say. Yeah, it's it's like a like a guttural sound that you make. <laughs> like we got a name Baby Yoda and somebody and Ryder just like grunted in the in the room and somebody's like, yes, yes, let's <laughs> use that. All right. So overall, if you were to give like overall you agree this is this was a this was an I don't want to say upgrade, but this was a worthy follow-up to season two. Um, yes, there was no sophomore slump. No, 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 no. They um, did a great job of. I thought they, I actually felt like there was more action in this season. Yes, I I definitely got that. It, and it, I think it was more in your face action too. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I think in the first season it was more like the uh, the old fashioned like Clint Eastwood yes. gunfights where like I'm behind a I'm I'm behind a, a rock and you're behind a rock and we're like trying to ping each other with with our blasters. And now it's more like Boba Fett jumping off of rocks and smacking stormtroopers like their baseballs and one of the things like we talked about with the fan services one of the things fans have always wanted to see is boba fett fight we've picked fans of one of that since uh empire strikes back you know when he first shows up and like fans have wanted to see him in action well, what what about bounty hunters look like when they fight and so here we are finally getting that and i who am not the biggest boba fett fan was interested enough after watching him fight and seeing his character development that I'm actually looking forward to the book of Boba Fett. And I've never been a Boba Fett fan. <laughs> and so they did a great job with that. I'm um, showing Fennec Shan showing how um, Pardoon, uh, how she fights. And like, it, it was good because like those characters having action sequences make sense because like bounty hunters being able to be good at fighting makes sense. A former shock trooper being really good at fighting. It makes sense. And 
I thought that the action was more exciting and more engaging. And I also thought they did a great job of bringing back the characters from season one in ways that weren't just gratuitous. Yes. Yeah. They were, it wasn't like we were looking like they were looking for reasons to make callbacks that like they actually fit a purpose yeah. in yeah. the plot line that was being set up. And, and speaking to the bounty hunters, uh, you have Django in the prequels and then Boba in the original trilogy. And you never, like you said, you never really get to see them fight that much. You see Django a little more, I think with like with Obi-Wan and the, the like shooting at him on the Camino planet. Yes. And, yes. And like flying away and whatnot and almost getting the better of Obi-Wan. And then you have him, the next time you see him is basically he's getting his head lopped off by Mace Windu, which somebody made the case that that should show how, how um, amazing a fighter and warrior uh, that Mace Windu is and that people have literally tried to do that to, to Din Djarin in mm-hmm. the Mandalorian multiple times with lightsabers and stuff. And he like blocks it with his Beskar. And so if Django's armor is Beskar, then that had to be a very well-placed lightsaber strike to, to kill him so easily. And if you're a fan of the old school Cartoon Network Clone Wars series by Jindy Tart- Tartakovsky, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, the creator of Dexter's Laboratory. Have you ever seen that version of Mace Windu? Who's like literally punching through the uh, droids with his bare hands. It's no surprise to see him do that. Yeah. Uh, and then that one, he actually also crushes Grievous' chest to give him his cough. But we're off the rails here. Anyways, point being, the action's awesome. They do a great job of giving you an idea of how great these fighters are, but they're not, inv- they're not invincible, which I liked. Like you see Mando get beat up. Like you see him get tossed around with the dark troopers. And I like that. It's like watching a Jackie Chan movie. He always gets beat up. Uh, the Legend of Drunken Mandalorian. Yeah. <laughs> so there are four major plot threads that came out of season two that need to be resolved in either later seasons of The Mandalorian or in spinoff series. So the question's kind of like, okay, we love this season. What now? So I kind of broke them into four, and you let me know if there's anything that I'm missing here. So the first one that came to mind for me was Grogu's training with Luke. So what happens with him? Have we seen the last of him? Does he die? in the temple when Kylo Ren turns to the dark side? All those are questions. Um, then the second one was Ahsoka's search for Thrawn. You would assume that this would involve the unknown fate of Ezra Bridger, who's the main character from the Rebels TV show. And if you're not, if you're a Star Wars fan and haven't seen that, skip to like the last three episodes of, episode, of season one and then watch it all the way through. Um, it's really, really good. And we'd also assume that this would int- reintroduce Sabine Wren, who was one of the other protagonists from that show. And this also leads to the question, Thrawn, who, if you do not know, is a Legends character that's one of the most popular, legend, most popular Legends characters. He is a Grand Admiral of the Empire. He was one of the fan-favorite characters because he was a bad guy that wasn't really bad. He disappeared nine years ago in an incident with Ezra Bridger, and we do not know what happened to him. So will this answer the question of what has Thrawn done for the last nine years? Then you also had, you know, the great bonus scene. I missed the first time I watched the last episode of season uh, two, which was Boba Fett taking over the, the Hut crime cell on Tatooine. So I'm guessing that the limited uh, series will focus on his relationship with Finnick and how, like, they met and how, you know, they built their kind of partnership. And I would think there's going to be some kind of flashback about how he escaped the Sarlacc, which seems like a big missing chunk of his history, <laughs> which we've been speculating about for 40 years now. And then also the last in thread that you would assume would get carried through to season two, which would be the Mando versus Bo-Katan relationship, you know, and he, is he going to help her rebuild Mandalore? Will they be allies, enemies or frenemies or 
Will he completely abandon the way um, as a child of the watch? And that was kind of something we kind of slowly, we slowly saw. They kind of intentionally eroded some of his legalisms about the way over the course of season two. So will that continue? Will he go full back out into his death? Will he go full out back into his death watch ways? Things that I'm interested in. So I just said a lot. What thread slash spinoff story interests you out of those four? Out of those four, I am I'm most interested in the last three. And I know this is like somewhat blasphemous to say because Baby Yoda, Baby Yoda, Baby Yoda was <laughs> was like the the driver of a lot of public interest in this show mm-hmm. for the first two seasons. But I'm glad they're pivoting from yeah. him uh, a little bit because it was starting to wear thin. The 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 um, the conceit, I guess, of the show being Mandalorian protects small green baby creature, um, and then the season two was Mandalorian tries to return green baby creature to uh, his own kind and and achieve that. And I think with that done now. Um, there's obviously the relationship is still there. Yeah. So I think, I don't think they're going to be doing much. Like they're not going to be doing away with him uh, permanently in the franchise. That would be foolish. Um, yeah. That would be, that would be like murdering a cash cow. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm glad that they're pivoting the, the central plot line of the show and keeping with the Mandalorian and not making it like the babysitter or mm, something yeah. like that. So I'm, I'm glad they're, they're pivoting away from uh, Baby Yoda. The one that interests me the most by far is Ahsoka's search for Thrawn. And that's going to happen her own spinoff show, The Ahsoka Show, which has been announced with Rosario Dawson, obviously going to play Ahsoka. But like Thrawn in himself is just a fascinating character because like I said, he's a bad guy that's not bad. He's basically unbeatable. Um, mm-hmm. The reason he has disappeared is because when the rebels could not beat him, they literally shot him off into the unknown regions of space because they could not defeat him in battle. That was the only thing they could think of. And it's also going to bring back an adult, Ezra Bridger. So um, that's the one that I'm just fascinated about. And Ahsoka herself is a obviously a fan favorite character, which is funny because I watched a really interesting video essay on how uh, hated Ahsoka was and how it was done intentionally. Like they intentionally made her whiny, uh, bratty, basically all the same character traits that Anakin had that people hated. I was about but, to say but did it with the purpose of her showing character development over the course of the series. So that on season one, she's annoying. And she's one of the reason that I hated the movie when it came out, the, uh, the theatrical release in 2007. And then oh, by yeah. season three, uh, yeah, I don't even know if you've seen it. It's mm-hmm. not good. And then by season three, you've grown fond from by season five, your heart breaks when she walks out of the Jedi order. So with her being just such a popular character, that show I'm sure is going to do fantastic. And, Thrawn being, you know, someone that is a Legends character that Dave Filoni has been so good at bringing Legends characters back into the Star Wars universe in the right way. They actually got Timothy Zahn, who wrote the Legends novel, to write a canon novel uh, detailing Thrawn's rise. Um, He's got a fascinating story. There's also a really good graphic novel about Thrawn. I think I shared it with you. I don't remember if I did or not, William. I I know I I told you about it. I think so, yeah. But um, so that's the one that probably most interests me. and then obviously the main story that'll continue in Mando season two, three uh, will be, you know, him versus Bo-Katan. Um, that's, I think that's might be mine, my, my yeah. favorite. And what, what, what's going to be interesting about that is we're going to see him go from being 
you know, a Western cowboy gunslinger to like part of a group of people. And it's going to be interesting to see, will the story be his inability to fit in? Will it be him falling in love with the Mandalorian culture as it is and wanting to save it and becoming the new Mandalore himself? Like there are so many ways to take that story. Mm -hmm. And like, I think it's gonna be fascinating to watch it play out and to see if there's going to be a power struggle between him and Bo-Katan. I, th I think that's that's part of the draw for me is that it's going from because in the first two seasons you get the very much this um, this idea of Mandalorians versus everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Like we we're, we're we all we are all on the same team. Yes, and we must stick together against the world or the galaxy in this case. And I think that's going to be turned on its head because now you have Mandalorian on Mandalorian conflict. Uh, um, not to say that there'd be fighting, uh, but there might be, but the fact that their, their intents and uh, their motivations are at cross purposes now and that she wants this symbol of authority and rulership of her people that she thinks she deserves. And he is Rec like the recognized rightful owner of it currently because he won it quote honorably in battle which uh, and which can we pause there for a second and talk about that first my first thought is okay so this is supposed to be the climactic battle he just defeated moff gideon rather easily and then as soon as he walks into the bridge with the dark saber i'm like moff gideon did that on purpose like yep. you can immediately see the plan which makes me appreciate moff gideon more because it's like okay you're not just a wimp. You you had a plan in doing this. You knew that as soon as he walked on that bridge with the dark saber, Bo-Katan Bo was going to lose her crap. And it was it was an act. Mm -hmm. And even like when he said like, I assume I know more than you. Uh, somebody was pointing out that when Din mentions that he can go, he can keep the saber and just do what he wants, just give him the child. That that's sort of like the tip off from off Gideon to exploit when he starts it because it seems that's right. It seems kind of weird that he starts of just attacking. Yeah, like, it's like. They make an agreement, and then immediately Moff Gideon's like, "Now I'm going to kill you." And and he's like, "What?" It's like, "We made a deal, so we have to follow through." And then he gets beaten with a dark saber. I had not thought of that, but yeah, as soon as he tried gives, as soon as he says, "Keep the saber," that indicates that he has no idea what its significance is. And then Moff Gideon exploits that. Man, that's that's good. Um, and he might have really defeated him in battle, but like like he might have really lost. But let's just like he he had a plan in doing that, and so I love that. I also want to address the issue of why she couldn't take the dark saber from from din jarn because on star wars rebels she takes it from sabine wren and is transferred leadership with no combat so i have done a lot of research on this this week um heard some really good explanations for that did you want to throw in anything before i throw in my two cents on that i, I yeah i've been looking at some similar things um analyses and things because i mean to somebody that's 21st century american they're like that's silly just <laughs> just take the stupid sword but i i think one the one of the best explanations that was offered uh or like for possible justification as to why her um her tune has changed since taking it from sabine is that there might have been like murmuring or um sort of an unquiet disquiet amongst the Mandalorians when they saw that happen like well sure she has the sword but she's not really like she didn't get it the right way so like maybe like creating factions yeah in, in her in her followers um and possible con like internal conflict and civil war or whatever and that that 
after this happens, they're planted as basically, was it after the, the, she received the sword that they basically destroyed Mandalore mm-hmm. or whatever? Yes. And mm-hmm. so they, they might look at that and say, well, well, you took it dishonorably last time and this karmic uh, consequence happened to us. So now you have to honor the, the code. And what I heard was similar to that with a few tweaks. Um, what they pointed out was that, and this was this I thought was interesting. When Sabine takes hold of the Darksaber, she does not win it in combat. It's found essentially at Darth Maul's lair and given to her. It's like, hey, this is a Mandalorian thing. Uh, you take this. So she never wins it by combat. And then she passes it on to Bo-Katan without combat. And so I think that's part of the fact that Sabine didn't win it by combat, which is why maybe she could pass it on without having to lose it in battle. So that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I thought I thought that was a good point too. And the second thought was that maybe that since she lost the dark saber in some way, shape, or form to Moff Gideon, we don't know how. We don't know if it was in one-on-one combat, which if so, it makes sense why she has to win it back in one-on-one combat, or if she lost it and they're like, well, during your leadership. Our planet was turned to glass, as Boba Fett put it, you know, blasted, mm-hmm. destroyed. You've got to earn the right to lead us again. It can't be given to you that t- this time, which is kind of similar to what you were saying. So, yeah. So just want to address that because I know it's come up a lot. It was one of the things that I thought immediately would happen. It's like, oh, wait a minute, why is she, why isn't she taking it? She took it before. So, but I cannot wait to go to the planet of Mandalore, see the factions, because we're introduced to the Mandalorians in the beginning of this show as like a group of religious zealots, basically. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that throughout the way they're introduced to other Star Wars properties. So in, you know, we see mostly Death Watch in the Clone Wars and Rebels. It's mostly what we see. And they are essentially religious zealots. That is who Jin Dar, uh, God, I can't say his name. That is who <laughs> Din Djarin is a child of, the Death Watch. They are a sect of religious zealots. And then you see someone like Bo-Katan who, when Maul takes over, basically says, there is no way I will ever bow the knee to this guy. Splinters off forms her other, her own group of zealots, you know, the Night Owls. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the, the idea of Mandalore. But like, what is a quote unquote normal Mandalorian like? One that's not a zealot. Like, yeah. what do they believe? Because even in the Clone Wars, you had like the pacifists that were led by uh, Duchess Satine. Mm-hmm. And, yep. her, and her group and they're like we don't want to fight that's like completely antithetical to the other perspective on mandalorians and that right. no, we all that's all we do we all we only only fight the famous line from season one weapons are part of my religion i mean mm-hmm. what and so it'll be interesting to see just like the dynamics of how when we get to mandalore mando fits in with the culture there and like i don't know i think that's a fascinating story basically so let me let me let me ask you this. Starting with the very first story, I want to get some kind of predictions. Where do you see it going, and/or where would you like for it to go? First of all, starting with your least favorite story, which is <laughs> Grogu training with Luke. I I've heard that there might be some murmurings about a Luke Skywalker series, oh. and I I think that it might be like a, a semi spinoff of this, where it's like him establishing his new Jedi school or whatever, um, and eventually have it be completely destroyed by kylo yeah. uh, i don't know if that's true um if that's true then i think they're going to need to go ahead and cast uh, sebastian stan to play sebastian stan yeah, that, that's the fan cast uh, and that's just like because he looks almost identical to mark it, hamill it's really kind of eerie you basically all you do is, is lighten his hair and he looks just like uh like, mark hamill. we don't we don't need any more of this deep fake 
uh, CGI overlaid actor stuff. Battlefront Two, Luke Skywalker. Ugh, it, it it wasn't great when they did it with Leia. It in was the not sequel trilogy. It was not. It wasn't like you could tell if you're. It's it's not quite lifelike. It's uncanny valley. It's not quite lifelike enough to pass as completely, like yeah, natural. Yeah, and I want to address something real quickly. I don't know if you've read the Rise of Kylo Ren, the Rise of Kylo Ren comic. Um, it's four part edition. They gave you some really interesting revelations there. For example, Kylo did not actually destroy the Jedi Academy. Apparently, it's a lightning strike from Palpatine, which that's a whole nother story. But apparently, Palpatine shoots force lightning at the Academy to set it on fire. I, we have to establish some sort of like standard for what Palpatine can do with force lightning. I um, think. you think? Because it's just like what, whatever. Like, like oh, I need to warm this popcorn. <laughs> Palpatine did it from three systems away. With so, a force light, like, like, what, wh- where, where, how far does it go? What does it do? How strong is it? It can apparently destroy a fleet of, of destroyers. But Luke like, Skywalker can endure it for like five minutes and live. Yeah. So I don't have a problem with that. But like, the Kylo Ren comic gives some very, very interesting details, and I'm like, um, so he didn't destroy the Academy. Palpy <laughs> did it from galaxies, light years away. And then Kylo actually ends up killing three of the students, not the entire population of the school. There's some really interesting revelations that I'm like, are we retconning the movie here? Like, are we try- like what are we doing? Because that's, that's canon. So that's, yeah, that's that's confusing because it's because we are told in the movies that he destroyed the academy, and that's from Luke's perspective. I guess on some level it makes sense with the other stuff because he's not quote unquote fully on the dark side until right. he kills Han. And so right. it, it wouldn't make sense for him to not be fully on the dark side and have slaughtered a whole bunch of children. Like that is a good point. Daddy. Now, but it, at the same time, it takes away from his character being like savage, so strong and, and, and vicious. So in the book, he doesn't really like, he's actually trying to like get away from the three, the three of the, uh, three of the Jedi from the school pursue him. And he's like, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. They confront him because they think that he destroyed the school, which is understandable. And they think, he, they think at that point he's killed Luke. And he basically finally snaps on them. It kills, I think kills two kind of by accident. And the third one he kills in cold blood. And that was kind of the beginning of his turn to like, he's evil. And in there, there's also a visit. He goes out in space and visits uh, Snoke, like at his space station. So there's a whole lot in those four um, book miniseries. I can't talk tonight. But anyways, I want to address the idea that if Grogu is with Luke, some of the theories are that he's either departed by the time that Kylo Ren is being trained, somewhere around there, 10 years after the uh, events in The Mandalorian. Grogu could have been fully trained. No, 19 years, I'm sorry, 19 years later. Grogu could have been fully trained and out there doing his own thing by the time Kylo Ren destroys the Jedi Academy. Um, maybe he comes back later on as a Jedi Master, which is a cool thought. And the other one that I like the most is the idea that he gets trained, then goes and takes the Mandalorian Creed, and joins Din Djarin as uh, a Mandalorian Jedi, so to speak, which I love that idea if that was to happen. That, that, that would be amazing. I, w- I would like to see it. It'd, it'd, be, <laughs> it'd be ridiculous. Something like what, like three foot tall? Yeah, yeah. And Mandalorian armor and a lightsaber. Just so that'd, be, that'd be pretty sweet. Google search Grogu Mando armor, and it's, there's some great renderings already, some fan art. Okay, so I think we both agree it's not the last time we see him. You agree with that, William? Yeah, I think 
uh, I know some people have said like, well, is he is he killed when Kylo Ren or in this case Palpatine? Yeah, destroys like destroys all of the students and the the new Jedi school that Luke set up, and I think that would be narratively cheap because mm-hmm. yeah. I think they've established in canon that Grogu escaped the youngling massacre Correct. at the hands of Vader. Uh, and I think it would be cheap for him to have escaped that one just to be slaughtered. Yes. Like, 60 years later by, by, by like the grandkid of the same guy. Leading candidate to have saved him, R2-D2. So, trash can. Yeah. So, um, all right. So the next one, this is the one that, well, I'm going to say my favorite one for last. Um, with Boba, okay. with Boba Fett taking over the Hut crime cell on Tatooine, like, what do you think that like? There's not really a lot to say about that, but where do you think that going? That's going. Do you think that's going to be more about him establishing his own rule on Tatooine, or do you think it's going to be more more about his past, like I was pointing out? I I don't want to sound too cynical about it because I'm I'm just as excited as you are that they announced that at the the season finale, um, and I've always been a huge Boba Fett fan yeah, just because. Yeah he's always been like the coolest thing, even though he's hadn't got a, there, there really isn't a reason to like Boba Fett because no. he's his cool like armor. quiet, mean, efficient. And the, the one time he's in a chance in a, to get in a fight, he gets whacked on the back with a stick and goes flying into the mouth of a giant monster. He was drunk off Spotchka. We all know that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I still liked Boba Fett as a child just because he looked cool. And I had like the action figures and things like that. <laughs> but um, I sort of want it, well, I, I sort of expect it to be sort of like, maybe not a continuous series, but like a mini, like a one, yeah, one season a, yes. sort of thing and have it be like gratuit, almost gratuitous fan service. Yes. Like he, here are chances for cameos and throw and callbacks and tie-ins from like the, the return of the Jedi era characters that we were familiar with. And so we can get like the Max Rebo band and the... <laughs> And all the other cool people that are interacting with the the Hut cartel on Tatooine, um, now doing it with mm-hmm. with uh, Boba Fett, and I I think that's that's at least how I envision it being sort of a not necessarily like the Mandalorian where you're branching out and expanding the universe, but you're sort of like filling in gaps. Yeah. Yes. And what yeah. we already know. That seems to make a lot of sense to me. Like a homecoming type of show. Like yeah. I used to work here. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna. I don't really have much to add to that, so I want to skip on to the Mando versus Bo-Katan. Like we talked about some of the possibilities. Do you have any takes on what you think might actually happen? Specifics, no, but I think uh, <laughs> I think you in, you introduced the idea of frenemies because I, I know they're they're both generally allied. They both have similar uh, goals and objectives, and they're both very pro Mandalorian, and they're, they're both pragmatic about what what they do with that um i know that mando was raised by the children of the watch and so he's basically been programmed with this this zealot mm-hmm. sort of mindset about this is what mandalorians do this is what mandalorians are this is how we conduct ourselves we don't take off our helmet but he's also shown that he's getting away from sort mm-hmm. of the programming and now that he's met other mandalorians that are different he sort of synthesizing all of this and you get this idea that in season two specifically that these quote-unquote religious cultural beliefs are not as important as my relationship Mm -hmm. with this child Mm -hmm. and i will do what i have to do to secure this child's safety uh, and well-being and if that means showing my face to a scanner or showing my face to other people then i'll do it 
Um, so he, he's demonstrated that he's Mandalorian, but also not crazed. I, I might say like, like the others, like the, we always have these rules of like legalistic. We, we follow these rules at all times, yeah. regardless of how, how much sense it makes. Um, we'll die in battle and be, we'll, we'll die stupid for lack of a better uh, term. But Bo-Katan comes from a more pragmatic, like, no, I'm not doing this. Um, stubborn, but also does what's necessary. I don't think there's enough conflict there to make them outright enemies. Yeah. But I think that their their allyhood will be very strained. Yeah. Because in the back of Bo's mind, there will be like, I have to figure out a way to get this thing from him. And in his mind, it's like, it's not even a thing. It's like, I tried to give it to you. I do not want it. Like, this is something that I just happened to get because I beat that guy because he threatened my child. And like, Bo-Katan is not exactly a good guy. She's more of an anti-hero. Like, she's one of the main um, protagonists, you know, for a while on the show, you know, rivaling her sister. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, after the crap hits the fan and something worse comes in Maul, she's like, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap. We have to fix this. We have to fix this. We have to fix this. And so, like, she's kind of a – she's not exactly a pure good guy. So, she's – in other words, she's a complex character. She's not a static character. She's very much a dynamic character. So, it's not hard to see Bo-Katan being pragmatic the way she is. Uh, turning on Mando, like I could easily see that happening, and that being like part of the conflict that she decides to turn him because like, hey, the best thing for my people is for me to have this dark saber. I have to do this to get it from you. Sorry, buddy. Like, but but and it could be like a a constant tension in the relationship, like you mentioned. So uh, yeah, yeah. Plus, well, I I think that um, it's interesting that she gives Boba Fett such a hard time about not being really Mandalorian. Yes, when she's basically the same ethical code. As, as he is like I, they're just making their way in the galaxy so to speak and like they're doing whatever they have to do to survive and it's and, very true because you know he's a child of the watch she was a death watch you know vigilante and i think in th- looking at that like i said i have no idea what the specifics are going to be but you can't help but feel they're going to have to at some point come together against some kind of larger threat and that's kind of what i'm wondering is Moff Gideon going to find a way to call down some kind of fire power that we haven't seen? Or is there another big bad that he's working for that's going to come in and join the fray? Because he's been the big bad at this point. And so I mentioned seeing what's going to be the exterior threat to Mandalore. Because we know we're going to have the interior struggle between uh, Mando and Bo-Katan. But like, what's going to be the external threat? And I don't know what it's going to be. I really want to see Mandal. I hope that they eventually, like maybe in season three, find a way to show us Mandal, or like you were saying. Like, yeah, I want to see the show planet. me what happened to it. Show me people like trying to make it there, mm-hmm. or like them visiting and seeing the destruction and sort of experiencing it together. At what's like this, the gravity and the uh, the seriousness of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, I want to see that. So, moving from that, let's go to our last one. This is the one that I want to talk about. Talk about the most, I'm most excited to talk about. And that is Ahsoka spinoff series, which we know is going to include her search for Thrawn. Are you with me in assuming that this search is largely to find the missing Jedi, Ezra Bridger? Do you agree with that? I, w- I would probably, that that and making Thrawn pay somehow. Yeah. 
So either that she's trying to find Thrawn to locate Ezra or Ezra is gone and she blames Thrawn and she's trying to, she's trying to cash a receipt, like something along those lines. This also leads to another question. What has Thrawn been doing? Has he been lost? Is he with the empire? I've heard theories that he's forming his own militia. Is he still working or has he been working for the emperor? Is he the overseer for Moff Gideon? Like, I, I don't know. Like, what do you think? I, I've, I've heard people make the, uh, make the case that he's sort of the, the unseen uh, director for Moff Gideon. Like, he's the one giving him orders that Moff Gideon's, like, having to answer to. And that would explain Moff Gideon's sort of ruthlessness about everything he does. And, like, we can't fail. Um, I, I think that makes some degree of sense. So, I'm not sure yeah. what he's been doing. I, I'd like to believe that sort of, and this is sort of the, uh, the optimist in me, is that when Ezra did his sacrifice play in Rebels, I would like to think that that stuck for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and that... Thrawn ha- didn't immediately like figure out a solution and to undo it and uh, come back on the scene and like completely negate all of the progress that Ezra was hoping to achieve by that. But Thrawn to be non force sensitive is probably the most formidable antagonist in all of Star yeah. Wars. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not force sensitive. And I think I think it would explain a lot about Moff Gideon, like the way he goes about things. If Moff Gideon was sort of like his disciple, because like even in the like the the scene where he's goading Din Djarin into a fight for the dark in the season finale, like you sort of see that calculation that he's like mm-hmm. threatening Grogu with the dark and then Din Djarin he says, "Assume every, assume I know more than you, or assume I know everything yeah. already." And that's that's a very Thrawn thing, like a very a very Thrawn uh, stance sort of thing. Like I I know more than you. As was knowing his real name and his background. Those are very Thrawn things. Yeah, like I'm not coming into this fight compl- like ignorant. Yes. I I know everything about you. I know everything about me. I know this area. <laughs> I know the stakes, etc. I would like. I kind of like the idea of Thrawn being like on his own independent mission to rebuild the Empire. Like, oh gosh, like trying to do his doing his own exploration of the unknown regions, uh, gathering knowledge to bring back. Maybe he had insight on whatever the contingency plan was when Palpatine died, and he's doing his own work behind the scenes for that. That's separate from what Moff Gideon's doing. Um, yeah. trying to gain genetic information for clones, it looks like, is what he seems to be doing. But, like, I, like, I kind of like the idea of Thrawn being kind of an independent wild card. I don't know. Yeah, he definitely seems like the kind of person that they, he, he's not thrown for a loop for long. Yeah. Like, you, you, might, you might get the best of him in a battle, but he's going to then assimilate that new data <laughs> into, into his thinking, and you're not going to catch him that same way again. Um, he's sort of like Khan. In hmm. Star, he's like the Star Wars version of Khan. It's hard to overstate his impact because the Star Wars franchise is Force uh, centric, right? Mm-hmm. Like all, almost all the main characters we care about are Force sensitive, mm-hmm. and of course you have an, like a, uh, an occasional like Chewie and Han that are that are there. But Thrawn is sort of one of those like Han Solo level, I'll say, characters that sticks around and has staying power. Um, that others don't and I'm very interested to see I'm more so than Ezra Bridger as 
as cool as Ezra is with his force abilities and and stuff, I'm more excited to see Thrawn. Yeah. I'm more excited to see Ahsoka interact with Thrawn, and I'm it's like you said, I'm excited to see what he's been up to, um, because it's probably something productive, and it's probably something that's very secretive and ingenious for the Empire, because that's sort of his he. I think, in the if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but his entire thing basically is being competent for service. Mm-hmm. Like he wants yeah. to serve the empire, the military side of things. Like yeah. He basically is my devotions to my people. The empire is better than complete chaos and anarchy. Mm-hmm. So if I can help the empire be more efficient, I'm helping my people ultimately. And that, that's his thing. And so he's like, well, I'm just going to be really good at this stuff that the empire asked me to do. Um, so he is a character that I am dying to see in the Ahsoka series. And I feel like it could end up with Ezra being maybe the MacGuffin, kind of like with mm-hmm. like Star Wars movies where maybe he has a small role and maybe makes an appearance. He's going to have to make an appearance or they're going to have to, because they're going to have to close his loop somehow. But I feel like it may be a chance to introduce Thrawn and then spin off into another series where you go into his entire backstory of, Hey, here's what this awesome character y'all love have been doing for the last nine years. And I can guarantee you that would be a very, very popular series as well. So basically in conclusion, Mandalorian season two was awesome. We're going to get several awesome shows spinning off from it. And for all the nerd people, they're getting what they want and the new fans are getting what they want. That's not possible, right? That's what we were told with the, with the, sequel trilogy you can't please the hardcore fans and the general public and then john favreau and dave filoni go hey hold my beer leave it to, leave all of it to them just just make them the kevin feige of star wars and just let them have all the decisions they're they're going to be the correct decisions every time don't let anyone else touch it don't love some of the connections they're making with the sequel trilogy i don't love that because i've always complained that sometimes star wars can be overly connected um, yeah. However, they are essentially going to retcon the sequel trilogy with some of the things they're doing so that it actually is semi-coherent because it wasn't. <laughs> and I have to say, if that's their intention, I'm okay with that. At least until this fabled four-hour Rise of Skywalker supercut comes out in 2021 oh, or 2023, which is when it's rumored to come out. So that's, yeah, that's a re- yeah, folks, that's a real thing. This rumored, basically a um, Zack Snyder cut of the Star Wars Rise of Skywalker movie that has some of the original has the original ending. Apparently, they filmed I've heard as many as ten different endings of the movie. Um, one which included Palpatine inhabiting Kylo Ren's body and Rey being forced to kill him, which sounds way more interesting than what we actually got. Uh, so I'm interested to see if that ever comes to fruition. If so, if all of the retcons they have done by that point help elevate the sequel trilogy. Yeah, it would be nice if they they didn't end it with like an Oprah favorite things episode if if her favorite thing was force lightning. Yeah, I'm sorry, but that was ridiculous. Like, I just, I don't let's not go into that again. I don't need it. I did not hate Rise of Skywalker, but there were some things in that movie that just made zero sense. Like things that could have been explained through 30 seconds of dialogue, like oh cloning and sith magic oh and hand wave and then oh yeah he's back who are these people wearing red what what, what are we doing anyways they're here we digress this is a long we're running over time here william uh thanks for jumping on with me to do this uh we're going to be doing more of these moving forward because i'm no longer coaching football so we all have time to do more of these 
And y'all, please be sending us topics uh, that you want to hear. You can you can always email us, titlerunsports at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcast platform is. So this is Dave Bethay with Title Run Podcast with my co-host for the day, William Lindblad. I have spoken. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you for listening.